One of the truest sayings around education is that old becomes new, only to become old again. My profession regularly swings wildly with whatever is making the rounds as the quote-unquote new solution for what ails education. Sadly, every cycle that I have been in during my 20 years as an educator has ignored what the Nordic countries have already discovered, namely that mandatory recess does more to improve academic test scores than any other intervention ever studied. Overtesting gives way to minimizing testing before then giving way to our current obsession regarding data collection, which can only be applied through a massive increase in testing. This in-again, out-again obsession isn't just an educational phenomenon. In 2023, America appears to have reverted back to the 1980s. The trend is so common that I hardly even turn my head anymore when I happen to spot a fanny pack out of the corner of my eye. InStyle magazine announced the return of the era of my youth by asking everyone if they were ready for sequins and shoulder pads. As the culture of the 80s reemerges like a horde of locusts, one of its greatest words has also begun to make a comeback. Rad. That's right, the word that inspired an entire movie has made it back into the American lexicon. In the 80s, skateboard and BMX culture appropriated the word and altered its original meaning dramatically. The advent of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles then solidified that meaning in a solid wall of concrete wrapped entirely by flex seal. But this word that became synonymous with awesome actually has much deeper roots. In fact, the term has a Latin history, deriving from the word radicalis, which meant of roots. Radicalis shifted its meaning slightly again in the 14th century, taking on the meaning of counter to tradition. Writer Aaron Gilbreth traces the 1980s reinvention of the term to a group of skaters in California known as the Z-Boys, whose long hair and carefree attitudes regarding authority definitely ran counter to tradition. He writes, Like spray-painting drunken geometries on the sides of the station wagon your mom gave you when you turned 16, removing the ickle removed the whole world from the standard lexicon, a radical move in the literal sense, tearing away its Latin roots so they could refurbish this bit of 14th century Middle English into a full-on American original as wholly ours as jazz and blues and hamburgers. As with all popular inventions, though, the words got away from them. Interestingly, the word rad getting away from its inventors is nothing new, merely a continuation of the cycle that what is old becomes new again. After all, the word showcased the pinnacle of its power in our story regarding the French Revolution. We pick up our story in 1792, where the king's family has just been moved from the opulent Tuileries Palace into the former dungeons of the Templars. A new regime is about to take the reins of the revolution, 
plunging France into bloody chaos where enlightened ideas of equality were applied to inventions designed purely to inspire terror. The French Revolution was entering its radical era. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is the fourth in a series of five regarding the French Revolution. Episode number four, The Beheadings Will Continue Until Morale Improves. The first leader of this next phase of the revolution was Sulpice Huguenin, a lawyer who had been elected as the president of the Commune Insurrectionnelle, an organization which had usurped power from the National Assembly and imprisoned King Louis XVI. With recognized power came a new name. Henceforth, the Commune became known as the National Convention. But this again was just repeating the past falsely believing that something new and better had been created. The National Assembly had previously used a decorative name change in order to create a feeling of legitimacy over the decaying Astats General. The convention's drunken assault on the Tuileries Palace had merely been their Bastille, the storming of which had been a somewhat spontaneous outpouring of the masses' angst. This time, however, there was a shadow power directing the actions of the new legislative branch. Once the king was removed, that leader would be able to consolidate power within the dark recesses. By the time he emerged into the light, it was far too late. The man pulling the strings was Maximilien Robespierre. Robespierre is a name that echoes through history as one of the most infamous figures of the Revolution. He was the son of a lawyer and had a modest upbringing within the Third Estate. Despite his father passing away when the boy was just six years old, he managed to excel in his studies, eventually following in his father's footsteps to become a successful lawyer himself. At the very beginning of the revolution, Robespierre was elected to the Estats General and began to establish a name for himself as a passionate defender of the rights of the working classes. It was during this time that he began to develop the radical beliefs that would define his later years, including a fierce opposition to the death penalty and a deep-seated mistrust of the aristocracy. He continued serving in politics by joining the National Assembly, but he didn't attach himself to the National Convention until after the successful overthrow of the king, literally waiting a mere 24 hours in order to gauge what the National Assembly's reaction would be. Historian Ian Davidson, our main source for this series, believes that the timing wasn't coincidental with Robespierre waiting to see if the bold move succeeded. It was after he emerged from the shadows to take a position with the National Convention 
that his role in the revolution began to take a more significant and sinister role. His rise to the top was by no means guaranteed, as he never gave off the appearance of a leader. Historian Jules Michelet describes the historical inquisitional figure of Robespierre as sickly, blinking, one who hid his dim eyes behind his glasses. He was a strange sphinx of a man whom one watched ceaselessly despite oneself and whom one disliked watching. An acquaintance who knew him well claimed that his external appearance was ordinary. He was not above middle height. He had a small head upon broad shoulders. His hair was of a light chestnut color, his face rounded, his skin slightly marked by smallpox. His nose was small and short, his eyes blue and rather sunken, his glance shifty and his manner cold, almost standoffish. He seldom smiled, and then only mockingly. A friend from school claimed that he was as we have known him since, sad, billowous, morose, jealous of the success of his comrades. His mobile face had already developed the compulsive grimaces we knew. He was never known to have laughed. Montajul, a chronicler in 1795, wrote that his figure was badly designed, ill-proportioned, and without grace in its contours. He was a little below average height. He had a convulsive twitch in his hands, shoulders, neck, and eyes. His face was without expression. He showed in his livid face and forehead, which frequently furrowed, the marks of a billowous temperament. His manner was brutal, his gestures at the same time brusque and heavy. The high inflection of his voice was disagreeable to the ear. He cried out rather than spoke. His time in the capital had not entirely erased his harsh accent. His pronunciation of certain words revealed the harsh tones of his province, with the result that his speech was deprived of all melody. Although he could see perfectly well, in the last year of his life he took to always appearing in public with glasses occasionally wearing two pairs at once. It seems to me that if you wanted to write the most scathing breakup letter, you could easily adapt Maximilian's description for the task. I'm so sorry to say that it isn't me, but definitely you. I've disliked having to pay attention to your sad, billowous, morose personality. I find you to be badly designed and ill-proportioned without a hint of grace. Your voice is quite disagreeable to my ear, and I don't understand why you always wear glasses when you have 20-20 vision. Now that would be a radical breakup note. The National Convention announced its revolutionary intentions by introducing some immediate changes. First, all men would be allowed to vote, as the new government did away with confusing distinctions between active and passive citizens. Secondly, the vote would not be held via secret ballot. Rather, each vote would be done in person via roll call. 
Such a change would subject voters to the maximum political pressure and intimidation from the mob. To ensure that the revolution moved forward in a straight line, the convention formed what was known as the Revolutionary Tribunal in response to the increasing political violence and social unrest in France. The tribunal was given the power to prosecute and sentence individuals accused of counter-revolutionary activities as well as crimes against the state. Its creation marked a significant escalation in the use of state violence during the French Revolution. Robespierre was initially offered the position of president for the tribunal, but declined the offer, stating that he did not wish to have the responsibility of sentencing people to death. Even though his original death penalty abolitionist position was softening, he remained at this point quite squeamish at the idea of serving as a judge in a tribunal that had the power to determine whether an individual lived or died. The first targets of the new tribunal were members of the nobility and clergy who remained staunchly opposed to the revolution. Within five days of its formation, it had secured its first execution. The victim was Arnaud de la Porte, a former minister of the king's household and a regular distributor of the king's secret funds. He was killed on August 23, 1792, by way of the newly invented guillotine. The guillotine is the imposing symbol of this era of the revolution. It consists of a tall, upright frame that supports a large blade suspended high above a platform. The condemned person, in this instance Laporte, is placed on the platform with their head positioned beneath the imposing blade. The blade is then released, slicing quickly and cleanly through the neck, severing the head from the body in one decisive chop. The invention was named after Dr. Joseph Ignace Guillotine, who was a French physician and a member of the National Assembly during the Revolution. It is a common misconception that the good doctor invented the contraption, but in reality he merely advocated for its use as a more humane and egalitarian method of execution. As prior to this, the death penalty was carried out via hangings, beheadings with a sword or axe burning at the stake, as well as the occasional drawing and quartering. Decapitations remained the preferred method of administering the death penalty, so much so that embedded within the word is the Latin term capitalis, which means of the head. It still remains a part of our word as the basis for the term capital punishment. The guillotine brought enlightened science forth to solve the challenges regarding executions, as even the most professional of all headsmen wasn't always perfect. Among History Extra's determination of the eight most famous botched executions is the story of the 65-year-old Margaret Poole, whose inexperienced headsman at the Tower of London completely missed her neck on the first pass sinking his sword instead into her shoulder. In a panic or perhaps embarrassment, he needed ten further blows to finish the job. 
as horrific as it may sound, a properly done beheading was considered both more noble and less painful in comparison to the noose. Yet beheadings were typically reserved only for the nobility. By doing away with all other forms of capital punishment, the guillotine fulfilled the revolution's goals of decapitating class differences. It was believed that it would provide a quick and painless death, regardless of the person's social status or background. While the death provided was swift, it wasn't immediate, as there remains enough blood within the human head to survive for perhaps up to 30 seconds. The guillotine was incredibly still being used in France in 1905, when Dr. Beatrix wrote the following observation for the Archives des Anthropologie Criminelle. Here, then, is what I was able to note immediately after the capitation, the doctor writes. The eyelids and lips of the guillotined man worked in irregular rhythmic contractions for about five or six seconds. I waited for several seconds. The spasmodic movements ceased, the face relaxed, the lids half-closed on the eyeballs, leaving only the white of the conjunctia visible, exactly as in the dying whom we have occasion to see every day in the exercise of our profession, or as in those just dead. It was then that I called in a strong, sharp voice, Langel. I saw the eyelids slowly lift up without any spasmodic contractions. Next, Langell's eyes very definitively fixed themselves on mine, and the pupils focused themselves. After several seconds, the eyelids closed again, slowly and evenly, and the head took on the same appearance as it had before I called out. It was at this point that I called out again, and once more, without any spasm, slowly the eyelids lifted, and undeniably living eyes fixed themselves on mine with perhaps even more penetration than the first time. Then there was a further closing of the eyelids, but now less complete. I attempted the effect of a third call. There was no further movement, and the eyes took on the glazed look which they have in the dead. The whole thing had lasted twenty-five to thirty seconds." The empowerment of the Revolutionary Tribunal had begun a course that would soon be littered with the bodies of their enemies. Foremost among those enemies were the priests of France. The demonization of the refractory priests was something that sharply divided the people of France and the sans culottes that had seized power in Paris. Davidson reminds us that most of France was rather profoundly Catholic and was alienated by the revolutionaries running conflict with the clergy and the schism in the church between the refractory, those who were unwilling to take the revolutionary oaths, and the loyal priests. Unfortunately, most of the so-called refractory priests had been locked up behind bars by the National Convention's Committee de Surveillance, which were set up throughout the country as a radical form of citizen watch. It is estimated that as many as 20,000 individual committees were set up in the days and weeks that followed the initial announcement. These groups were designed to help consolidate the convention's power as the National Assembly remained in existence, 
continuing to send out delegations to the generals who were barely holding off the advancing Prussian and Austrian armies. The committees were organized at the municipal level and were composed of a group of elected representatives who became responsible for maintaining public order and enforcing revolutionary policies. The members of the committees were chosen from among the local people and were supposed to democratically represent the interests of the commoners. The groups monitored the activities of individuals within their jurisdiction and reported any suspicious counter-revolutionary behavior, such as complaining about the work that the convention was doing. They were empowered to make arrests, conduct investigations, and impose fines and other penalties on those who were found to be acting against the interests of the revolution. In other words, they were highly empowered, democratically selected snitches. The committees were regularly accused of overstepping their authority, engaging in arbitrary and often brutal tactics, as they were empowered to force their way into people's homes without a warrant. The convention's seizure of power coincided with rising fear regarding France's chances for victory regarding its foreign wars. As Austria and Prussia pushed deeper into French territory, the enemy general expressed that the war would be a, quote, walkover. The convention's response wasn't to throw everything at the external threat, calling instead for the imprisonment of priests and royal journalists. Lists were produced, and in a few short days, the convention's secret police force had imprisoned more than 3,000 in Paris. It is at this point where Georges-Jacques Danton enters our story. He was a public prosecutor who became active in politics after the fall of the Bastille. He was known for his fiery speeches and ability to mobilize the masses. In 1792, he was appointed as the Minister of Justice for the National Convention and thus oversaw the formation of the secret police and the subsequent arrests of the priests that refused to swear their mandatory oath of allegiance to the state. As the calendar turned from August to September, most power players knew that something sinister was afoot. As early as August 11th, police departments were being informed of plans to assault Paris's prisons in an attempt to met out justice to the captive residents. Louis Stanislas Ferrand, publisher of the newspaper La Orateur de Poupois, explicitly called for a massacre, writing that the prisons were bursting with criminals. He ended his editorial with the chilling words, that it was urgent to rid society of them right away. Jean-Paul Marat then proceeded to pour gasoline on the fire, writing that the last resort, which is the surest and the wisest course, is to go armed to the prison to drag out the traitors, especially the Swiss officers and their accomplices, and to put them to the sword. Let's take a moment to further introduce Jean-Paul Marat, one of the most important and strangest of French revolutionary figures. 
Marat was born to a family which resided within the lower middle class of Switzerland. He received a medical education and practiced in both England and France. Still, his success, which included experiments in aeronautics, optics, and electricity, never amounted to him receiving the just due that he believed he deserved. Thus, a deep-seated resentfulness of others developed as his core personality trait. Historian Mark Steele writes that Marat's motivation was more complex than personal bitterness. He was appalled by inequality and wrote that if people are denied the necessities of life, they will consider themselves outside the social system and therefore not subject to that system's laws. So he proposed free education, paid for by taxation on the rich, and public workshops to eliminate unemployment and that anyone not wishing to work should be banished from the state. His best-known early work, The Chains of Slavery, was an uncompromising denunciation of royal tyranny, a defense of the sovereignty of the people, and a display of sympathy for the poor and downtrodden, which he never abandoned. They were themes that he carried through his publication, La Amour des Popois, or The Friend of the People, which he began publishing in 1789. The newspaper was widely read during this portion of the revolution and had a significant impact on public opinion, advocating for radical political reforms and exposing corruption and abuses of power among the ruling classes, including those within the National Convention, an organization that Marat himself was a part of. Among the newspaper's more than 10,000 subscribers were members of every social class and occupation. It remains to this day a precursor to the modern phenomenon of fake news, which often utilizes inflammatory rhetoric to incite violence. Marat's writing was deliberately provocative and often based on half-truths or outright lies. Worse was the fact that he was not at all afraid to use violent imagery and language to get his point across. Among his most notable quotes, in which nearly every single sentence ends in an exclamation point, includes, Death to the traitors, long live the nation, the country is in danger, the enemies of the people conspire within our walls, let us crush them before they crush us. In another article, he wrote, Let the blood of the traitors flow. That is the only way to save the country. Still again, he made his view clear on the nobility, writing that, No, 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 a hundred times no. There is no such thing as a good aristocrat. Still in another, he proved that his viewpoint had absolutely no room for compromise, writing that, the people must take up arms and punish their oppressors. They must show no mercy to those who would enslave them. In 1793, he made his position abundantly clear, urging his followers to let us make terror the order of the day.
Marat's call to attack the prisons in September of 1792 were heard by the masses, and what can only be described as an orgy of violence began on September 2nd. Danton, the Minister of Justice, gave a fiery speech on that day, supposedly directed towards the Austrians and Prussians invading their land, claiming that the bell which is about to ring is not a signal of alarm. It is the order to charge against our country's enemies. To defeat them, gentlemen, we need boldness, more boldness, still more boldness, and France will be saved. Nowhere in the speech did the Minister of Justice make any mention of the widespread rumors about planned attacks upon the prisoners of Paris. That afternoon, 24 prisoners were moved by the Committee de Surveillance. Many of them were dressed in ecclesiastical garb befitting of their station. Screaming crowds appeared along the path, suggesting that their movements were leaked ahead of time. As the prisoners reached their destination, the mob attacked them with pikes and other makeshift weapons, butchering all 24 defenseless inmates. Nearly simultaneously, another group of sans-culottes assaulted another prison that was known to hold a large portion of refractory priests. Davidson tells us that the prisoners invaded with rifles, pikes, sabers, and sticks and massacred 188 priests and three bishops. Soon, another mob forced its way into a third prison, where it massacred 50 to 60 former defenders of the king, most of whom were Swiss guards. Rather than stop it, the leaders of the Committee de Surveillance urged the anarchy on, declaring, Comrades, you are ordered to judge all the prisoners of the Abbey without distinction. And Danton, the Minister of Justice, countersigned a proclamation that was circulated to the other provinces of France that read, The Commune of Paris hastens to inform its brothers in the department that some of the ferocious conspirators held in its prisons have been put to death by the people. Acts of justice, which seem to them indispensable to retrain by terror the legions of traitors hidden within their walls at the moment when they were preparing to march against the enemy, and no doubt the entire nation after the long succession of betrayals which have brought it to the edge of abyss will hasten to adopt this measure so necessary for public safety. The killings went on without any opposition until September 7th, and by the time it was over, as many as 1,200 prisoners had been murdered, many while they remained trapped helplessly within their prison cells. The exact number of victims is difficult to determine, as many of the bodies were disposed of or buried in mass graves. Somewhere between 40 to 45% of the capital's prison population was massacred in cold blood over a five-day period. A large number of the victims, perhaps as many as two-thirds, were common criminals who happened to merely be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Those targeted in the massacres were the political enemies of the state, including members of the First and Second Estates, as well as the Swiss guards who were just doing their job protecting the king's home. 
The absurd brutality was justified in part by fake news, which had proclaimed to have uncovered another prison plot designed to release the pro-royalist forces so that they could then join with the Austrians and Prussians in their effort to restore the king, crush the revolution, and of course slaughter their wives and children in their beds. The craziness that was the National Convention lasted a mere six weeks. New assembly elections, which had been called for after the arrest of the king, took place, and the new convention officially sat for the first time on September 21st. Its initial statement issued was that the monarchy is abolished in France. Despite enfranchising all men over the age of 21, only a few more voted in this round of democracy, as the chaos happening in Paris only served to create distance between the revolutionary government and the people that it seeked legitimacy from. Davidson explains that the policies of the revolutionaries were having results which alienated more and more voters. Whether it was the disorder of the economy, the quarrel with the Catholic Church, or the strains of the war. Many ordinary people were shocked by the violent way in which the king had been overthrown, and now there was the further trauma of the September prison massacres, which sent waves of horror right across France and beyond. Although the number of votes went up, it was because the franchise had been massively enlarged. The relative turnout remained almost as low as before, at just under 12% compared with just over 10% in 1791. One-third of the 749 new deputies had previously served in one of France's legislatures. Despite their attempts to be a revolution of the working classes, only two elected officials were members of our blue-collar brethren. Neither of them would play a major role in the final phases of the revolution. Invited in as honorary members of the convention were Jeremy Bentham, the English inventor of the political philosophy of utilitarianism, as well as American founding fathers George Washington and Alexander Hamilton. Each wisely declined the offer. Initially, the party known as the Girondin held the most power, but this was mostly because of the forceful personality of their leaders. The Girondins were a geographical distinction for a group of radical left-wing Jacobins. The Montagnards, another Jacobin group, had the privilege of having the largest delegation. These followers of Maximilien Robespierre sat further to the left than the Girondins and managed to sit so high in the chamber that they derived their political name from the term mountain. Coincidence also played an early factor in the consolidation of power by the moderates in the National Convention. On September 20th, the final day of the National Assembly, the French military prevailed in the Battle of Valmy. The Prussian Duke of Brunswick had predicted that the battle would be a walkover in his favor. It is quite easy to see why he felt that way, 
as the Revolutionary Army was both outmanned and outgunned. They only succeeded by exploiting tactical advantages, the first of which was their artillery. The French Revolutionary Army had successfully modernized its artillery units in the years leading up to the battle, and they were able to use their limited guns to devastating effect against the antiquated Prussian forces. The French artillery was particularly well-positioned on high ground and thus able to rain down fire on the advancing Prussian troops, causing heavy casualties and disrupting their formations. As Anakin Skywalker found out, it is both quite dangerous and arrogant to advance against an enemy who holds the high ground. Military forces defending their homeland also always have more to fight for and tend to know the terrain better. The French forces were more experienced with modern tactics, including rapid movement designed to disrupt enemy formations. The Prussian forces, by contrast, were a traditional army that relied on slow, disciplined movements and massed formations. As the battle progressed, it became clear that they were unable to adapt to the more fluid and dynamic tactics used by the French. Still, the Battle of Valme was only a minor engagement that saw around 300 Prussian casualties. Davidson hints that Brunswick could have pushed on from there towards Paris. Instead, he withdrew, conceding the battlefield to the French. One explanation is that he was shocked to find the French army was much better than he had expected. The Prussians had come to assume that in any confrontation between their disciplined, seasoned troops and the disorderly rabble of the revolution, they could count on an easy victory. But when they saw the disorderly rabble stand firm, with cries of Viva la Nation, they were disoriented and unnerved. Another factor was that Brunswick army was suffering from widespread sickness and ill-supplied with food from home. A third was the long-running distrust between Prussia and Austria, now flaring up over the imminent partition of Poland, which Brunswick advisers saw as more important than pursuing the war against France. Crucially, the Battle of Valmy was the first time that the Revolutionary Army had defeated a major European power. That it happened nearly simultaneously with the ascension of the new government resulted in a massive post-election bounce for the Girondins, who had been in charge of conducting war policy. It also sent a clear signal to the rest of Europe that the Revolutionary Army meant business, discouraging further incursions for the time being. Maximilien Robespierre, however, was not so easily deterred. The Girondins hastily used their newly acquired political capital in a desperate attempt to moderate the ongoing revolution, starting with a campaign leveling harsh public criticism at Maximilien Robespierre. They accused him of utilizing the Revolutionary Tribunal, which he had reluctantly joined, as a tool of political repression, which it most certainly was. 
They also argued that Robespierre's continued focus on internal enemies, such as the priests in the prisons, jeopardized the larger war against the monarchists. The Girondins had the power at the moment, but Robespierre was known for being willing to patiently wait in order to diligently find the right time to strike. The hasty withdrawal of the Prussians left a vacuum that France surged into. Despite the generals declaring that their victories against Austria in Belgium would liberate the nation, the convention denied its approval of Belgium's sovereignty, instead enacting a policy which immediately exported the revolution to the shores of its neighbors. They began by seizing all church land in order to sell it off in desperate hopes to pay for the war. Davidson puts it best, stating, France now had to fight an ever-expanding war of conquest in order to pay for an ever-expanding war of conquest. There are plenty of reasons why governments are willing to continue hopeless wars. Like most conflicts, this war served to produce jobs, which the Jacobins in charge gave to the Sands culottes in an effort to buy their continued loyalty. The seizure of foreign tithes, as well as the sell-off of Belgium church property, constituted one of the largest thefts in world history, unprecedented since the time of the Roman Empire. As it became clear that France would defeat the foreign forces arrayed to save the monarchy, the National Convention remembered that they still had a monarch in captivity. Louis had been arrested and placed in the Temple prison in August of 1792. He and his family were initially kept in relatively comfortable conditions, with separate rooms for the king, queen, and their children. He was even allowed to take his favorite dog on walks around the prison yard and was even provided with servants as well as access to his favorite cobbler. There are even records showing Marie Antoinette ordering lingerie from inside the confines of her cell. However, their situation deteriorated over time as the revolution became more radical and anti-royal sediment grew. After a series of procedural roadblocks, the king was officially put on trial in December of 1792. The case against him was made by a 25-year-old delegate who would go on to be nicknamed the Archangel of the Terror. Louis St. Just, who was anything but, stated that the only purpose of the committee has been to persuade you that the king should be judged as a simple citizen. And I say that the king must be judged as an enemy. I do not see a middle ground. This man must reign or die. No one can reign innocently. The truth is too obvious, he continued. Every king is a rebel and a usurper. Citizens, the tribunal which must judge Louis is not a judicial tribunal. It is a council. It is the people. It is you and the laws which we must follow are those of the rights of the people. Louis is a foreigner among us, he told the crowd. He was not a citizen before his crime. He could not vote. He could not bear arms. He is even less of a citizen since his crime. 
Everything I have said tends, therefore, to prove to you that Louis XVI must be judged as a foreign enemy. I add that his condemnation to death need not be submitted to the people for their approval. Louis has waged war against the people. He is defeated. He is a barbarian. He is a foreign prisoner of war. As you might expect, the king did not receive a fair trial. Evidence was withheld from Louis. Any witnesses that would have spoken up for him would have already been murdered in the September prison massacres or executed via the guillotine by the tribunal. Although he likely never had a chance, the king's decision to thumb his nose at the proceedings, refusing to recognize the authority of the court, sealed his fate. Voting began on January 15, 1793. It was a unanimous guilty verdict on the question of whether the king was culpable for usurping power from the people. The second vote was whether the people or the convention would determine the king's fate. The convention won the day by a 424 to 287 margin. The final question then was what the penalty should be. The debate on this lasted for 36 hours, and due to some parliamentary shenanigans, it arrived at exactly the minimum number needed to secure the death penalty on the third vote. Louis' own cousin, the Duke of Orleans, was among those who voted in favor of execution. The anger within the deliberating body spilled out into the streets that night with one of the deputies who voted in favor of capital punishment being stabbed while out at dinner. The sentence was carried out immediately. Although the king asked for three days to put his things in order, he was only given the opportunity to spend one last night with his family. On January 21, 1793, 20,000 troops were arrayed to secure the scaffolding around the guillotine. The crowds were kept far from the proceedings, and when the king tried to get in his last words, they were fiercely drowned out by the sounds of drums. Four men seized him, tied him down, and pulled the lever to release the blade of the guillotine. Crowds surged forward against the troops, attempting to dip their handkerchiefs in the pool of blood of the former king in what has to be the single worst souvenir in history. Danton, who behind the scenes had been working to secure a lucrative payday by selling the king to his foreign allies, proclaimed to the crowd, The kings of Europe threatened us. Today we hurl at their feet the head of a king. In May of 1793, the patient Robespierre saw his chance and struck viciously politically decapitating the Girondins. He didn't hold back his words, accusing the Girondins of being traitors to the revolution, 
claiming that they were conspiring with foreign powers to overthrow the government and restore the monarchy, which they certainly were not. He singled out their leader, Jacques-Pierre Brossat, as a particularly dangerous enemy of the revolution. This wasn't the first time that he had attempted to unleash the mob against Brossat, whom he had denounced publicly as a traitor just eight months earlier. In that incident, Brossat's house was ransacked for evidence that never existed. This time, Robespierre's words whipped up a frenzy of support among the radical fractions of the convention, resulting in the Girondins being expelled from the National Convention and their leader being taken into custody. The cause of this internal purge seems to be entirely about personal animosity and the desire for power. Davidson writes that, at this crucial moment of the revolution, they shifted to a winning strategy. The Girondins did not, and that strategy was to enlist as allies the street power of the Paris Commune and the Sans-Culottes. It was a triumph of Paris over France, becoming what the city of Rome was to the empire of Rome, its beating heart. One Girondin from Marseille called it out for what it was, claiming that their enemy's aim was to establish a dictatorship, that it was the party of Robespierre. One of Maximilian's first moves in charge was to deliver a speech to the National Convention calling for an immediate trial of Marie Antoinette and other leading figures of the old regime. She and thousands of others would follow Louis into the afterlife, their bodies separated from their heads via Enlightenment justice. Robespierre's reign became known as the Terror, with perhaps as many as 40,000 being executed during a 10-month period of political consolidation. The revolution had begun by removing a dictatorial king in favor of power returning to the people. But what is old often becomes new again, as Robespierre seized power from the people in favor of one-man dictatorial rule. Robespierre's radical reign of terror and the end of the French Revolution will be the focus of our final episode in this series. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.